Take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3 once again. 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll begin at verse 8. As Peter sums up all he's been teaching about how we should live godly in an ungodly world. 1 Peter 3, verse 8, let's hear the Lord's word. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. We'll stop there, asking God to add his own blessing to the reading from his word. Can we bow our heads in a word of prayer before we do preach and listen to the preaching? Let's all seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, it is in Jesus Christ's name that we come now. We thank thee for the opportunity to preach, the privilege of preaching, and the time we have to listen to what the Lord would have to say. We pray the Spirit of God will tune our ears to hear what we need to hear. He will tune out all distracting thoughts. He will prevent the devil from getting a toe in to the meeting. In any way, we are conscious, Lord, that we're always in a battle. There's always resistance from hell to the work of God. You're not ignorant of his devices. So we pray that thou wilt shelter us under the blood of Christ. Thou wilt give to us this morning the joy of hearing thee speak to us from thy word. Speak, Lord, for thy servants here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're turning once again to this passage where Peter tells God's people how to live a long and good life. For he that will love life and see good days, let him, the word for in that verse 10, ties what he has just said with what he's about to say. If a Christian loves life, that is, if he really wants to live long, and in the living of a long life see good days, days that are good because they are days of seeing God's goodness in his life, then Peter says, let him, let him what? The 4 of verse 10 takes us back to the beginning of verse 8 where we find Peter begin to supply the answer to our question. Let him do what? If you want to live a long, good life, then pay close attention to how you think about and how you treat your church family, your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how I would sum up what we've considered so far in this section. Peter begins with how we think towards the body of Christ, our attitude, because how will how we behave before there is right living that's the old truth right living is preceded by right thinking it has everything to do with the attitude 
with thought life, with the mindset. So as the apostle tells us how to go living the good life, and good life as defined by God and by his word, not by the world, not by society, but what the real good life is, Peter tells Christians to be ye all of one mind. If you want that, be ye all of one mind. Put another way, the quality of our Christian life will be directly affected by whether or not we seek to promote and nurture and protect the harmony within the body of Christ. That's what he's saying. You want to live a good life? Then you be careful about protecting and nurturing unity within the body of Christ. To ignore the command to be of one mind is to court trouble, strife, and division, and resentment. And those are terms that describe anything but living the good life. It's not the kind of life we want to live. To take that command to heart means that there will be a mind that is first and foremost one with God, in agreement with Him, in harmony with the Lord's will, His commandments. And that will result in a heart and mind that is at one with the brethren. Because if you are in unity with God's will and you're in harmony with that, then you're going to be in harmony with God's people. And when you have a heart and mind that is in harmony with God and with others, surely you'll have one that's in harmony with itself. There won't be this inner strife. You'll have peace. Because you really believe it's important to have one mind in the body of Christ uh, to enjoy the good life. But not only does Peter tell every Christian who honestly desires to live the good life that he must seek for this unity of mind, we saw last week that he, he must also strive to nurture a unity of feeling, not just thought, but a feeling. That, that's what he means when he writes, having compassion one of another. So we saw, did we not, that when it comes to the church family, when we are called by God, to enter into their feelings, whether their feelings are feelings of joy or feelings of sorrow, there's a unity that is to exist. It's not just weeping with those who weep, that's true, but it's rejoicing with those who rejoice. That's what he means by having compassion on them. When the Lord blesses one of our brothers and sisters with answers to prayer, the same prayers that we've offered to God, and he either hasn't answered ours or he said no to ours, when he gives brothers and sisters gifts and talents that far exceed our gifts and talents and blesses their labors with greater success than he blesses our labors, we don't stand aloof from them because we're jealous or envious. That is not having compassion. That is not entering into. It's not rejoicing with them who are rejoicing. If the Lord's hand has brought pain and suffering 
into their life. If he's taken away health or wealth or loved ones, then we enter into their sorrows and we seek as much as possible to consider their condition as if it were our own. That's what he means. We weep with those who weep. We don't stand up from them and, and leave them to endure their sorrow alone. We come alongside to let them know that we are with them and that we are for them. Even when the pain and suffering has been self-inflicted. Even when it's been because of their own actions they have brought themselves into that place of misery. We still stand with them. We treat them as if their condition is ours. We found that in order to live the good life, Peter says also that we must practice brother love. That's what that word love as brethren means. Brother love. Our mindset, our attitude must be that we are brothers and sisters who are part of the family of God. We are family. And the reason that we are family is because God is the one who chooses whom he puts in his family. Aren't you glad he chose you to make you one of his family? Other Christians might not be so thrilled about that. They might find there are things about you that they just don't like. Well, it's tough because they didn't have anything to do with who gets in the family. Nothing whatsoever. God makes a selection. This is adoption. It's his choice. And each one has been placed there by God. So we are all in the family. The family of God. It's true, as I said, breaks in fellowship may indeed occur within the family, but there will never be a break in what is a divinely created relationship. You can no more break that relationship that you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ than you have with your own flesh and blood, brothers and sisters. It cannot be broken. It will always be. Fellowship, yes. That could be a problem. But not relationship in the family of God. So, so when we view ourselves as family, each other has brothers and sisters in Christ, and that goes a long way to find out what, what brother love looks like in practice when you think about how you deal with your family, uh, what, what you put up with, uh, how you treat your family as opposed to those who are outside the family. I won't rehearse the seven things that I said about the character of brother love when it's on display, but it would be well worth your while and mine that we take them to heart and review them on a regular basis. What brother love actually looks like in practice. Now, Peter no doubt has the behavior of Christians, as I've been pointing out, other Christians in mind. It, it appears to me that he now begins to expand his instructions to those who want to live the good life. He expands them to include people who are outside the church. In other words, beginning with the command to be pitiful, Peter is showing us how we are to treat people in general. 
whether they're saved or not. It's just how we are to treat people in general as those who profess to be Christians. Remember the context living a godly life in an ungodly world and we continually in contact with people who are ungodly. How do we treat them? They're not family. But there's still things that God says about our behavior toward them. That's important for us to enjoy the good life. So in the first place, and I won't get beyond this, in the first place, whether saved or lost, the Holy Spirit teaches us that if we desire a long life and want to see as many good days as we can in that long life, then we must be Christians who are merciful. We must be Christians who are merciful. The word there, verse 8, the B is in italics, it's not there in the Greek, it just says pitiful. Pitiful. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, that's the same Greek word translated here, pitiful, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The primary word in this compound word, translated here, pitiful, is the Greek word for bowels. Bowels. Referring to your intestines, your heart, your lung, your liver, everything within. To the ancient mind, whether it was Old Testament or New Testament, to that world, the bowels are like what we would call our heart. It's the seat of our affections. But to the Hebrew mind, it was especially the seat of tender affections, especially the seat of pity and mercy. You can do a little word search if you want to, a word study of bowels in the Old Testament, and you'll find that indeed comes up again and again, the bowels being moved. It's someone having mercy or feeling pity for another. Remember last week we, we, we looked at that term, having compassion one of another, and it was a much broader term than we normally think of having compassion because it dealt with entering into their joys as well as their sorrows. But this term speaks especially of sympathizing with them in their misery. That's the stress now. It's entering, sympathizing with them in their misery. But it's not only feeling pity for them in their misery, but showing them mercy. Showing them kindness in order to alleviate the misery. All that is wrapped up in this word, pitiful or tender-hearted. So there's two points I want us to consider under this fact that if we're going to enjoy the good life, we, we really need to work on being merciful Christians. 
First and foremost, I want to look at the existence of Christian mercy, the existence of it. This, this being merciful, pitiful, tender-hearted, is something that can only be found in the heart of Christians. What he is calling for here cannot be experienced in the heart of those who are lost. It's very true that unsaved people can and have a pity for those who are in misery. Countless among the lost in this world, there are who have given large sums of money, millions, some of them, large chunks of their time and energy. They've sacrificed uh, their lives, used their talents to people who were living in miserable circumstances, who were in great distress. They pitied them. And they've shown all this, all this kindness and they've made all of these, no doubt, sacrifices but it's a pity that can be found naturally in the heart of any man. But that's not the kind of pity and mercy that Peter's referring to in this text when he tells the Lord's people, be pitiful, be merciful. He's writing to Christians who have had a first-hand experience of the mercy of God of God's mercy shown to them who have come to understand that mercy through knowing the truth of God's word as it is in Christ. You can't say that about a lost person. There's an existence of mercy in our souls that has only come through believing, through knowing and believing the truth as it is in Christ. As we have experienced God's mercy, Toward us, we've received that mercy. We've known what it is for God to pity us. And that has taught us something about mercy that the lost cannot know. Perhaps the words of Samuel Stennett in his hymn, Majestic Sweetness Sits Enthroned, would capture the idea he saw me plunged in deep distress and flew to my relief. For me, he bore the shameful cross and carried all my grief. He saw me plunged in deep distress. That's our story in a nutshell, is it not? We, we, we were plunged in deep distress, all right. We were deep in sin. We were deep in debt to God. Deep in debt to His law. A debt we could not pay. And every day that we lived, the debt just got deeper because sin just kept piling on top of sin, on top of sin, on top of sin. We were deep in misery because sin produces nothing but misery. We were deep in helplessness, and we were deep in hopelessness. We couldn't get ourselves out of this deep state of misery. 
but he saw me plunged in deep distress, knowing all of that. And he flew to my relief. He pitied us. To take the words of Matthew, he was moved with compassion. And it was that heart that was full of pity that moved him to deliver us from our sad and sorrowful state. So you see why I say the only one who can show the kind of mercy, can have the kind of mercy, that Peter is describing is the one who's received that kind of mercy from the Lord. That becomes especially clear when you compare the object of pity and mercy shown by the lost with that of the believer. The focus of the pity, the natural pity that occurs in, in men, it's always temporal in nature. The philanthropist, the good-natured, kind-hearted, benevolent, man of the world pities and tries to relieve the misery of his fellow men, but it's always about temporal miseries. He sees them living in squalor, and so he seeks to bring them to enjoy better living conditions. He pours millions into projects that will bring them out of the squalor because he feels sorry for them. He hears about lands or people who are suffering from some disease and he pities them and attempts to bring them relief. And doctors and nurses have gone to places where disease is raging and they've sacrificed their own lives to try to bring relief to those people, but it's not the pity we're talking about here. He sees those that are poorly educated, and so it makes efforts to educate them, to bring them out of their ignorance. He sees them as captivated by society and seeks to change their temporal standing in society. But he never gives one single thought to their spiritual need, to their spiritual state, to where they will spend eternity. And we wouldn't expect someone who hasn't had pity upon his own soul about those matters to have pity on somebody else's soul about those matters. It reminds me of, of George Whitfield when he was preaching to the masses, and he, he usually just wept as he preached the gospel to them. He says, I weep for you. You want to know why I'm crying? I weep because you will weep for yourselves. How true that is. So I don't expect someone who's lost to weep for those in their spiritual condition, their spiritual state. He may cry over their poor living conditions and their poor health and their lack of education and shed many tears, but there's no thought given to their. It's all about this life. So concerned about the misery in this life, but no thought given to the misery that will be for eternity. In that life. 
That's what Peter's dealing with. The Christian's mercy is like God's mercy. Christ said in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. There's the Master issuing a command. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father in heaven is merciful. God, don't mistake what I'm saying for one moment. God pities mankind in all of his various miseries. Temporal ones included. But it's a man's never dying soul that's the special object of God's mercy. Not his poverty. Jesus said, listen, the poor you're always going to have with you. It's just a fact of life. There will always be people in poverty. And he sought to relieve poverty as the situation arose. But his interest was always in the soul. That's the object. That's the grand object of God's mercy. And that should be the grand object of our mercy, of our pity. Be ye merciful as your Father is merciful. The comments that I read of an old divine were very heart-searching. I quote, He has the truest compassion for his neighbor who cannot, without a tender sorrow, see him throwing away his immortal soul, heaping up wrath for the day of wrath. Whoever believes that religion is a reality must be more deeply affected with such a melancholy sight than with seeing the bodily wants or consuming diseases of men or with hearing their most dismal groans and mournful complaints occasioned by worldly loss or bodily suffering. For he knows the soul is more valuable than the body. Hell is worse than death. And time is shorter than eternity. End quote. After reading that, I could not but ask myself the question, do I have this pity? Do I have this tender sorrow for the lost who are all around me? Do you? You want to enjoy a good life? The Spirit says, be pitiful. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And the grand object of his mercy are the souls, the spiritual needs of men. 
and we, we can't, can't get, get away, away from, from it. It's obvious from the fact that the Spirit has given to the church a command, a command to be pitiful, that it must be something that must exist as a Christian. But it must be something that needs serious attention. He had to tell husbands to love their wives. It needed the command. There must be a reticence on the part of husbands not to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So the command was needed. The command is needed. Be merciful. It's a mark of Christianity. We're children of a merciful father. It's a mark of being a child of God. That's the existence of Christian mercy. Now, the second one. The expression of Christian mercy. The expression of when Peter says be pitiful, he's not simply saying to feel pity for those in misery. He's not simply saying to weep for them. He's saying do something about it. Do something to relieve their misery. So where there is true tender-heartedness, there will be a desire to help those who are in misery out of their misery. Remember that Peter is dealing with those outside the body of Christ as well as those inside the body of Christ. It's not enough that we we feel sorry and we shake our heads for men who are making themselves a fuel for the flames of hell. Oh, listen, I know what, I know what it's about to get comfortable with Christians. And feel like I'm okay because I've got a ministry to Christians. I'm teaching and preaching the Word of God. But what about those who aren't Christians? What about the lost? Who are by their life making themselves fuel for the fire? As you think think about them making themselves fuel for the fire, remember what Jude said, verse 23 of his little chapter, others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. That that, that looks like something. I mean, it conjures up an image in your mind, there's someone who's in the fire. And I need to pull them out. You would do that. You would do that, would you not? If you saw your neighbor's house burning down and you knew there was a little child in there and oh, they've got the child. I've got to go in and pull that child out of the fire. You would do that. Would you not? Or would you sit back and just, well, you know, it's one of those things. 
I know what you would do. Well, now, now that's the imagery that Jude is using. It's not just feeling pity for them, it's doing something, pulling them out. That speaks a pretty strong, definite action. Strong language. Should we not weigh carefully, and perhaps more often than we do, those words of Solomon in Proverbs 24? Will you turn there with me just for a moment? Proverbs 24. The man who had wisdom like no other. He writes to his son in verse 11, If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? You can't pretend that you don't know. You can't pretend you didn't know souls all about you are dying. The Lord who keeps the soul knows all that goes on in the soul. Don't, Don't forget, forget the encouraging words of the Apostle James. He which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. That's my, that'd be a great blessing to enjoy in life. That'd be loving the good life. Pulling men and women from the fire. Converting them from the air of their way, saving souls from death. What a difference that would make in life here below. But you see, it gets us out of our comfort zone. We like to stay in our nest. We don't want to have to talk to people. We just, we just let, let people, people believe what they, they want to believe because we feel it's not going to have any impact anyway. I've, I've tried, tried it on it before, therefore what's the use? Well, what I have to say is what God has to say. What I have to face myself is, here it is in black and white. Be merciful. Show them mercy, pull them out of the fire. Isn't that being merciful? Is it being merciful, leaving them in the fire? Okay, this was a heart-searching text for me. Where pity is sown, there, there will be a harvest. 
You know the text well in Psalm 126, He that goeth forth and weepeth, there's the pity. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing. There's a good life. Bringing his sheaves with him. No, no sowing of mercy, no sowing of pity, no harvest with the sowing of the seed and mercy and pity. There is a harvest and there is joy. What a difference it would make in life here below for the church. One old divine wrote, were Christians as pitiful as they should be, as they might reasonably be expected to be, there would be no want of Christian missionaries either for home or foreign service, and no want of funds for their support. That said it all. If the pity was where it where it should be would be no lack of missionaries for home or abroad and no lack of money to support them. Surely this is given when it comes to the pity that should exist within the body of Christ, within a church family. If we see someone who is suffering, who is in pain, then we won't be content with saying, I feel sorry for them. If it is within our power to ease their sorrow. If we see a brother or a sister who has some genuine temporal need, whatever the temporal need might be, then Christian mercy is not going to be content with simply praying for them and hoping that things get better. That's what James says in chapter 2 and verse 16 of his epistle. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Your pity isn't real pity. It's just a feeling and a wish. But this being merciful Christians is not about having a wish and a prayer. It's about expressing the mercy. If it's within our power to feed and clothe those who have by providence been brought across our path, then we feed and clothe them. We help them as much as we are able. We help them as much as we are able because we have been clothed and fed by God. We have been clothed and fed by God. I thought about Job. 
Remembering about him especially, God himself said of him, there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. He told the devil this, there's no one like him. He's peerless. As far as a godly life is concerned, Job describes in chapter 29 his former life before the tragedy struck, the trial and troubles came. When the ear heard me, then it blessed me, and when the eye saw me, it gave witness to me, because I delivered the poor that cried, and the fatherless, and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I was eyes to the blind, and feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and the cause which I knew not, I searched out. I just didn't wait for it to come to me. I searched it out. What can I do to show mercy? A dagger went into my heart. What about that passage? Isaiah 58. Where God describes those he will guide continually. You talk about living the good life to be guided continually. And he will listen to this good life, satisfy their own in drought, and make fat their bones, and they'll be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. Is that not living a good life? Surely it is. But who are they? They are described in that chapter as those who divide their bread to the hungry, who bring the poor who are cast out into their house, who see the naked and cover them, who hide not themselves from their own flesh. That's who they are. God says, that's who I give the good life to. I bless them. It's remarkable, it's remarkable that this, this grace of Christian mercy is singled out by Christ when he describes those at the great white throne judgment. And especially those who are invited to enter into the joy of their eternal inheritance. Well, that's, that's the scene in your mind. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, there's the word, it's a tie word, for I was hungered and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto these, the least of my brethren, ye have done it unto me. 
That's what he ties to the invitation to come enjoy the inheritance. The Lord taught a solemn lesson about Christian faith. And gospel found the parable of the unjust steward in Matthew 18. He owed the king 10,000 talents. Um, it was an the king that he and his wife and his children be sold to pay the debt. He falls on his face to the floor. He worships me time. I'll pay it all back. Matthew says that that king was moved with compassion and forgave him all of his debt. But steward went out of the king's presence and he found someone who owed him a measly 100 pence. It's nothing compared to 10,000 talents. He got him by the throat and demanded payment. That man fell at his feet, begged him to give him time. He would pay it all back. But unlike the king, he had that man cast into prison. The king hears about it, and he calls him on it. I pitied you. Why didn't you pity him? He was delivered to the tormentors until all was paid back. Moral of the story? Where no mercy is shown, there will be judgment without mercy. Where no mercy is shown, there will be judgment without mercy. That's one side of it. Pretty good motivation to be merciful Christian. But Paul gives another view. Different side of the coin. He wrote to Titus in chapter 3, We ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. We were so full of hate and self. And the Lord pitied us and showed us mercy. And then he tells Titus, you make sure you keep God's people mindful to do good works. So here I am to make you mindful. We are to be merciful Christians. Not just about feeling pity. Not just about praying about it. But acting. There's no shortage of misery around you and me. 
it's part of our calling as Christians and part of our living the good life to make sure there's no shortage of mercy. No shortage of misery means there is no shortage of mercy. There should be no shortage of mercy. The first sight most law sinners have of the mercy of God is when they see it in Christians. First sight. We profess to serve a God of mercy. Then we must show mercy to those who need mercy. Whether within the church or without. Be pitiful. If you're really serious about enjoying the good life. God read his word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thy word continues to search our souls. We don't want at any time to be guilty of what James describes, but especially in this, Lord, we don't want to see a reflection of ourselves in the mirror to feel the point of the sword of Scripture and then walk away from it all and forget what thou didst tell us to be and to do. Now, Lord, we need help. We need to remember what we're called to be. Not only to remember what we're called to be, but we need help, Lord, to live what we're called to be. To pull sinners out of the fire. To rescue those who are trapped by sin. To pity to be tender-hearted. Oh, Father, we do want to love life and not hate it. We want to see many good days to this end. Grant a growth in our lives in being pitiful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.